we are going through a book this summer in this class called God is Stranger by Krish um, Kadaya. Samantha says his name differently than I do, but I don't know what's right. Um, and so this week we are at chapter 8, which is Ezekiel and the Stranger. And it's the God who turns up the volume in which a young refugee meets a stranger far from home and discovers why there is hope and in exclusion. Okay, so um, Kirsch starts out this chapter talking about um, his experience when he went to the Apple headquarters. Um, the slogan, I didn't remember this, I don't know if y'all will, the like original slogan for Apple when they started to gain like momentum was the crazy ones. Um, and it was all about people who wanted to make a difference in the world and wanted to take a leap of faith and not just fit into the mold, but do something different. Um, basically, making a mark on the world, history makers, game changers. Um, and so he goes on to talk about just kind of Apple's model of this these world changers. Um, and then moves into talking about Apple upgrades and compares that to church upgrades. You know, we like how many of us get a new phone and um, it's gonna, you know, you have you have to go get the iPhone seven. It's gonna be so much better than the iPhone six. Um, and we do that about church sometimes too. Like, oh, you have to read this book. It's totally gonna change your entire spiritual life. Or you have to go to this seminar. It's gonna make you, you know, the Christian you always wanted to be. Um, and how that can be big talk, but delivers little. Um, so he takes all of that and begins to relate it to, um, oh, and I'll, I'll um, read this little quote that he says. This is an ad from Apple. It says, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and square holes, the ones who see things differently, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world, and the ones who do. Um, all about thinking different and, um, yeah, and changing the world. So, he relates this to Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel is the best fit for my crazy ones t-shirt, which he got at the Apple store. His message and methods were edgy, to say the least. But he was used by God in his time, and he has something important to teach us today about understanding the God who is stranger. Not only that, we will zoom in on a particularly unsettling allegory that God gives to Ezekiel in a vision, and which raises some serious questions about how God relates to strangers. Okay, so the beginning of Ezekiel, if we look at Ezekiel 1, um, Ezekiel was a refugee. Um, he was, and not a refugee as in a child who was, you know, put into this terrible situation and and you feel for this small child. He talks about how Ezekiel would have been um, a prime candidate for a security watch list, if you, you know, think about it. He was a man, he was a grown man, he had you know, different beliefs, and um, he came there on foreign soil as a refugee. So if we read Ezekiel 1, 3 through 28, which is a little bit long, um, I'll read and we'll see how quickly we can get through this. Okay. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Bazai, by the Kebar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. 
I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud of flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and the fire what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of light. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparked like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in one of the four directions of the creature's face. The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their ribs were high and awesome, and in all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved, and when the living creatures rose up from the ground, the wheels arose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. When there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings, above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above them on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw what appeared to be his, wa his waist up. He looked like a glowing metal as if full of fire, and from there down he looked like fire and the brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so is the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. I heard the voice of one speaking. So um, this vision that Ezekiel has is crazy, insane, and he tries to put it into words, um, which I think, like, if nothing else, I just want to applaud him for trying to describe that because it does seem really crazy. Um, <laughs> so he's explaining his vision, but more than just trying to explain this thing that we, I, I, I can't even like begin to picture what he's talking about. He's trying to recreate emotions. Um, and we see a parallel here with Ezekiel and Isaiah. There's angelic beings in his vision. We, we talked about Isaiah a few weeks ago. I don't know if y'all are here or not. Um, but there's angelic beings in his vision, and then there's burning coals, which the burning coals represent wounding and healing. Um, 
The difference with Ezekiel's vision is that he sees movement, and this represents, we believe this represents that God is not static. Um, and we also, I'm not going to read all this, but if you go on to read Ezekiel 2 through um, chapter 3, verse 9, um, it's Ezekiel's call to be a prophet. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll read the first few verses. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. Um, and then he goes on to tell Ezekiel about um, this rebellious nation that he's sending him. So, um, yeah. So, and then if we flash forward to um, chapter 10, we see a description of a fiery heavenly chariot and thunderclouds, which represents God storming out of Jerusalem. So, You've got Ezekiel, he has this crazy vision, he has a call by God, and we continue to see these kind of crazy visions and, and ways that God is trying to um, recreate, or ways that God is trying to explain to Ezekiel what is going on, and Ezekiel's describing them for us to recreate these emotions. Um, skip ahead a couple pages. See if I can figure out where I wanted to read on this page. Okay. Um, feeling far away from home and destabilized in his faith, Ezekiel needed this reassurance that God was with him in exile just as he had been in Jerusalem. However, only a few chapters later, Ezekiel witnesses similar imagery of a fiery heavenly chariot and thundering clouds used to depict God storming out of Jerusalem. The wheel throne is no longer an escort vehicle, showing that God can be elsewhere in the temple, but a getaway vehicle, indicating God's intention of being anywhere but the temple. It is revved up and ready to move from God's presence of the Holy of Holies. This is devastating news. The temple, which had been essential to Ezekiel's life and faith and sense of community, is about to be deserted by the one who commanded this creation for his glory. So I'm going to pause for a second. I want us to talk about how this... We can, you can go back to the beginning, or you can um, talk about this last little passage in the book, um, how this makes you feel that God has this call for Ezekiel, and, um, and you know, Ezekiel sees God abandoning Jerusalem. I think, yeah, how do we feel about that? Reactions or questions? We rushed through that beginning. Yeah, it's quite a um, crazy story to, especially now since not too many people anymore have just vision straight from the Lord like they did um, in the Bible. So it's hard to imagine something that would just feel like a crazy dream to us, but Ezekiel knows that it's, you know, he can feel or he feels like he's looking upon the Lord. It's just a crazy thing for to comprehend, you know, like what that would be like. And after, just immediately after all of this, he's just probably trying to process like what are these creatures I'm looking at. 
and then he's like just hit with like a vision of what he thinks is God. He's looking upon the Lord or whatever he says, and um, and then I, I I think just like a lot of prophets in the Bible, I'm always surprised by you know the Lord just coming straight to them and saying, "Okay, I've got this mission for you, and go." You know, just like okay. Right, really right now, yeah, it's just yeah. kind of like I've got this, I've got this huge plan for you, and it's making your life totally different. And you probably weren't planning for it, but here you go, <laughs> you know. And so I feel like that's just like, wow, okay, here I go, you know. And um, a lot of times, it's also just throwing them into a very volatile situation with whether that's like a nation in disarray or. Um, of people who have disobeyed and the prophet is the one saying now you're going to be punished and so they they get the backlash so it's just quite a lot to take in um but it does make you i think it does make me think about um just the faith that you would have to have to carry out this mission and it, it might help you know that you see the lord firsthand and he says this to you it probably does help but it's just um surprising I was reading some things this morning, really, about Jeremiah, because he got a call, too. And this commentator said a lot of the prophet, people that were told to prophet, prophesy did try to get out of it. You know, like uh, Moses, he's like, I'm not a speaker. I can't do this. And God says, you know, I'll take care of that. And then Jonah was another one that was mentioned that he... He didn't want to do it, and Jeremiah had to, said, I'm too young for this, because he received it very young, and so, you know, yeah. yeah, they finally, like, she mentioned, yield to it. Yeah, yeah, and I think I mentioned this um, in the Not without some kind of, sometimes, like, no, 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 and God sometimes is even harsher, you know, and it's just, you don't do it, it's going to get done, or they would say, I made you, now, you know, I made you, and I made, made you, equipped you, uh, or even with Moses, where he said, well, okay, I'll let Aaron speak, or, you know, so he, he was determined to get that thing done, whether by you or somebody else. Yeah. Amen. So I think one of the important things to note about all of these characters have a deficiency, for lack of a better word, or, or something that makes them seem not fit for the job. And so what we were talking about back in the beginning, Ezekiel being a refugee, um, you know, I think we a lot of times have, and Chris talks about, you know, the perception that all Christians should or, or do blend in together. Um, so thinking about Ezekiel that he would not have blended in here um, and but you know God is the one calling him um, and the other piece of it is that Ezekiel's assignments assignments were really bizarre um, and our true assignments as Christians can be perceived as weird in the world thoughts on that Sermon, how that Paul 
too, like to that whole the Apple model that Chris talks about. Are we willing to be difference makers? Are we willing to be the outliers in society? You know, Ezekiel was, at least in some sense. Um, I think no doubt he probably thought it was all bizarre. Like, just because he describes this creature doesn't mean he thinks that that's really normal. <laughs> I think that's one of the main struggles with Christianity nowadays is comparing it to Apple. <coughs> you know, the roots of it, the beginning of it, was a countercultural movement against the norm. And it was just radicalism doing things that you weren't supposed to do and you were doing for the Lord. And as society's progressed, we've become so big, we've had so many members, we have this long history and rules that we have that I think it's become too normal for a lot of people. Kind of like how Apple started as the second choice to Microsoft. Now everybody has an iPhone and everybody's used to it and they've become the norm. So how can we get back to that thinking of, we're really, we're really not supposed to be complacent and just fit in the mold of society. We've got to think of something different, think of a different way to approach things to get back to our roots. For sure. Mm -hmm. this, this lady that we work out with my husband and I had a person that work out with and she was just telling me that basically we're about the only people she knows that don't have don't drink a lot <laughs> she's like she said all these women that I work out with she's their church going women but they all are drinking wine and I mean there's nothing wrong with drinking wine but she just like I think it's because they think it's cool that's the wrong thing, you know. They're doing it to be part of the, just like everybody else, you know. And it's kind of surprising that even that would be a, a mark of being different, you know. That you're not into, but in today's society, that's that's different mm -hmm. to not be drinking a lot. <laughs> we yeah. Are Okay, I've got one more little thing from the book before the book kind of changes gears. Um, it says, but the voice of God asked Ezekiel to do what is not really what we, to do is not really what we want to hear. What if he asked us to do or say things that will alienate us further from those he has sent us to reach? How can we understand a God who makes the Christian faith so hard to live out, promote, and defend? To help us see not only who, why God is stranger to, is a stranger to us, but also why he may make us seem may make us seem strangers to those around us. Ezekiel contains a very disturbing story. It is so shocking that at first glance it is difficult to reconcile with what we think we know of the grace and compassion of God. Okay, so <coughs> with that, excuse me, he is transi transitioning to Ezekiel 16. So we get to Ezekiel 16. And um, God starts to tell Ezekiel this story, basically. 
he starts to describe Jerusalem as a baby. Um, so if we don't want to flip over to Ezekiel 16. Um, and I'm going to read verse 3 through 7 really quick. So he says, And this, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered into puberty. Um, okay, so I'm going to pause there. Um, okay, so he describes Jerusalem as a baby. Um, this baby that is born and just thrown out, abandoned. Um, I mean, I think this portrait for us can be really shocking, right? Like that doesn't happen here babies are cherished and loved and not thrown out. Um, I do think a good thing for us to remember that Chris reminds us of is um, we may think this sounds outlandish and crazy and something that only happened in the ancient world, um, but this is still happening today. Chris goes on to talk about how in India um, there's gender-based abortions. And the other important note here is that he's describing a female baby. So um, a little girl baby is what he's describing, which in that time, you know, sometimes baby girls were abandoned because they didn't want girls. And But that's still happening today. India, you know, you have gender-based abortions. You have killing after birth. Um, India's not the only one. I think it's been the most reported on. Um, and publicized, but you know, China they have the one child law, and so a lot of times, if they have a girl, the baby girl is killed or abandoned, um, which is a very sombering thing for us to think about. But I, in relation to this story, but just also in relation to life, I think it's important that Chris brings it up and that we recognize it. Um, he says. Thoughts on that before we before we move on to tell the rest of the story. <laughs> no. So the story is sad. The story is terrible, but it goes on. Um, so Ezekiel sixteen, the rest of verse seven through verse fourteen. Um, so I'll start again at the beginning of verse 7. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you, I saw that you were old enough for love. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you. <laughs> Declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointments on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. And I put a ring on your nose, earrings on your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were of fine linen and mostly in costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was honey, olive oil, and the finest flour. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. 
and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty. Because of the splendor I have given you, you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Okay, so we see this baby thrown out, abandoned. Um, the baby is rescued by God. God's, this, the book says, um, God's loving rescue of the most vulnerable in this story illustrates his depth of compassion and mercy for Jerusalem. Once a pagan city with a dubious history, now taken under God's wing and cared for, it challenges us as it was to challenge Ezekiel's listeners to remember our rescue by God and the pride he takes in us despite what we have come from and therefore not to be embarrassed to make a stand for him against injustice. It challenges us to emulate him, opening up our hearts and homes to those who are the most vulnerable. Um, And then he goes on to to talk about the verses that we just read. Um, So... I think it's easy to, I mean, there's so many odd parts of this story for us to look at this part of the story and say, okay, you have this picture of a baby abandoned and an adoptive father. Now you have the picture of the baby growing up, becoming a woman, and the adoptive father marrying or um, partnering with the, the girl. And we can really quickly say, that is messed up. Um, and I think our, our society has made us have a bad view of that because of so many terrible things that grown men have done to young females, right? Like, that's that's where our mind goes to. But we have to put this in context of what was going on in that time. A respectable older man marrying a young woman when she has a terrible history was a very, like, noble thing to do. Um, this in some ways parallels the story of Ruth and Boaz. Um, so a few weeks ago, we talked about Naomi and that story as well. Um, so in this, we see God as a father, which is something that we, um, I think, use a lot to, um, to get our good feelings about God or, or feel that warmth, comfort about God. We see him as a father. Um, we also, throughout the Bible, um, see God as a husband. You know, we see the, the church as a bride and Jesus as the groom, and um, we see that. So he's showing us both of those comparisons here with this. Um, you know, she's adorned, she's lifted up, she's given fine clothing, she's given great food. Thoughts on all of that? No. <laughs> the other piece of this is that uh, Kirsch says that this is hinting to, um, by personifying Jerusalem, it hints to God's presence in us. Um, so, you know, we have God the Father, God as the husband, the church as the bride, and then the other piece is God's presence in us, which is the Holy Spirit. Um, and if somebody wants to turn, I'm going to read something in the book, and then if somebody else wants to turn to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19 and 20. Um, Okay, with that in mind, we see a whole new spin on Ezekiel's story. This is an incredible rags-to-riches love story that illustrates God's merciful dealings with his lost people. From the bloody nakedness of her abandonment, this young woman is now being bathed and clothed in finery. 
Once a baby left in the field to starve to death, now she's being offered choice foods. Not only has she been rescued, she is recognized and admired in her own right. Jerusalem has come a long way since God first chose her for his holy city. Um, yeah. Now she has not only become the capital of the nation, but is privileged with hosting God's temple. Her place of honor is shown by the very presence of God on earth in her midst. The allegory um, is poignant. By personifying his city, Jerusalem, not only does this powerfully set the scene for the betrayal that is to come, but it hints at the time when God's presence will be personally experienced by believers through the Holy Spirit living inside us. And then someone have 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Yes. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Okay. Okay. So there's where we're at in the story. We've got these great, warm, fuzzy feelings of all of these different ways we relate to God. Um, but the story is it's not done. So if we read on, um, this is Ezekiel 16, verse 15. But, I, but, you tr- but you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places, where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him, and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes and to put on them, and you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered us fragrant incense before them. This is what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. Um, okay, so we see a big shift in the story, right? And it's um, important to note um, that this woman that he's describing chose this life, right? She is, is not forced into prostitution um, either by slavery or, you know, financial desperate measures, she she chooses this. She doesn't have to choose this, and she chooses it. Um, and this level of um, promiscuity is still relevant in our world today, um, I think. Thoughts on, on this? Just something that you know, God blessed her so much, and then she used those blessings that he had given her for ungodly purposes. I guess we can be the same. We be so blessed in so many ways and then use those for ungodly purposes. That's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the rest of chapter 16 goes on um, I mean and even crazier things happen. Uh, Verse 20 says, And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. And all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. Um, Which is kind of the saddest part of this story, right? This rags to riches story, this baby that was abandoned and now she's 
slaughtering her children. Um, I think this just can can shock us, um, but I, God is, you know, in a lot of ways doing that on purpose. He's trying to make um, Jerusalem understand the significance of what they're doing. You know, they are they are prostituting to. Um, here we think, you know, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians. And, um, yeah, let's, let's see where else do we... Um, okay, so then if you, you know, he, he goes on to talk more about what she is doing or, or Jerusalem is doing. And if we pick back up in verse 35, it says, Therefore you prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because you poured out your lust and exposed your naked body and your promiscuity with your lovers, and because all of your detestable idols, and because you gave them your children's blood, therefore I'm going to gather all of your lovers with whom you found pleasure, those you loved as well as those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around, and will strip you in front of them, and they will see you start naked. I will sentence you to the punishment of women who commit adultery and who shed blood. I will bring on you the blood vengeance of my wrath and jealous anger. Then I will deliver you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your mounds and destroy your lofty shrines. They will strip you of your clothes and your fine jewelry and leave you stark naked. They will bring a mob against you and will stone you and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn down your houses and inflict punishment on you. In the sight of many women, I will put a stop to your prostitution and you will no longer pay your lovers. And my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I will be calm and no longer angry. So God, you know, describes this really um, kind of evil threat. Um, and it is just a threat, but it is very violent, um, which... Thinking about God as the one threatening this violent act um, takes our little, sometimes cookie cutter, perfect image of God and and blows it up. You have to think too, like you just mentioned, he's actually talking about this country, right? Israel and Judah, uh, and. But he's using person. But we could think our country has been blessed so much. God's given us so many amazing blessings, freedom. And, but we take that and abuse it. Take the freedoms we've been given, whether it's freedom of the press or our, uh, and we too <laughs> use it for. In ways that that's not glorifying God. Yeah, for sure. And I think he uses such violent imagery to grab our attention because that's what we as humans respond to. I think if he had used language that wasn't as vivid, it would be something we would pass over and not pay as much attention to. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why he yeah. makes it so vivid and violent. Yeah. It's kind of ironic because sometimes when those bad things happen, Raging out of control, that he's trying to tell us something about our 
and he doesn't really want us to say it's from God. I mean, I just want to be a strap and I mentioned this before. You have to really be careful about saying this is from God. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. But you know, we you can have a look into it and think this is happening because of the what we're doing. We're stripping the forest or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. My own time. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it it is just a, a threat. It's violent, though. So how do we respond to this, you know, violent threat that God makes? Um, there's four things. And I'll try to get through them really quickly. Um, the first is that this is an allegory. It's he's trying to uh, um, get an emotional response. You know, a shock into a level of sympathy. Um, and it's important to note that God is not endorsing domestic violence here, right? He is threatening a nation for their actions. He is not saying that it's okay for a husband to strip his wife in front of a group of men and let them beat her. That's, you know, we have to put this back into context of what God is saying. Um, the sex, second thing to note here is that God treats women of sexual abuse in a way that is counterculturally gracious. Um, so we look at different women in the Bible that um, have been in these similar situations. Rahab, Hagar, Tamar, Bathsheba, Jesus. Um, even Jesus, you know, was born of a virgin. So, yes, she was a virgin, but he looks like an illegitimate child to the perception of the culture. Um, the Samaritan woman in John 4, um, the you know, the woman pouring perfume on Jesus' feet, on Jesus' feet, the when he protects the adulterous woman from getting stoned. God treats those women with extreme graciousness. Okay. The third thing is um, we there are attributes about God that are communicable to us and they are ones that are incommunicable incommunicable to us um, incommunicable category would be his self-existence his omnipotence, his self-sufficiency his transcendence his um, omniscience communicable would be the ways that we describe God he's mercy, he's love um, he's justice I can't read the last word that I wrote um <laughs> And we feel this parallel to God, right? We feel God speaks, we speak, so we have um, we have this relation to God because of that parallel. And so in that, God is trying to find a way to accommodate our limited understanding. We cannot understand these incommunicable things about him, but he knows we can understand these communicable, the love, the mercy, the justice. So that's a, the reason or one reason that he is using um, this extreme violent story. Um, it's kind of the comparison Krish makes is like when you tell a toddler, don't stick their finger in an electrical socket. You don't explain to the toddler electricity and why that's going to hurt. You make a big reaction with your face and say, ow, no, you know, like, so that's what God is doing. And then the fourth thing is hyperbole and personification. Um, it's similar to David's angry psalm. You know, he asks for God to bring atrocities on his enemies. Um, does he really mean it? Is he just expressing his anger? But God withholds the final blow. Um, he has patient and compassionate mercy. 
the personification of the holy city, you know, is representing a severed relationship. So we have, at the end of chapter 16, a glimpse into divine mercy. So if you want to read later, Ezekiel 16, 53, and then 60 and 62. So the note to leave you with is, are we like Jerusalem, forgetting where we were before God intervened? Um, and then, I don't know what my last word means either. Um, <laughs> Ezekiel 16, 53, and then 60 and 62. The very end of the chapter goes on to compare all of this to Jesus' death and resurrection, new life from dry bones. I marked two more pages in the book apparently to read you. Um, Ezekiel's brutal, stark, and emotional allegory gives us a fresh glimpse of a God who is deeply pained by the unfaithfulness of his people and the injustice in the world. And then the last little thing I will share with you says, um, is a quote from Steve Jobs. And it says, that's maybe the most important thing. It's to shake off this uh, erroneous notion that life is there and you're just going to live it versus embrace it, change it, improve it, make your mark upon it. I think it's very important. And however you learn that, once you learn it, you'll want to change life and make it better because it's kind of messed up in a lot of ways. Once you learn that, you'll never be the same again. (sighs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing. Thanks.